Father, thank you so much for another chance to come together and to study the Bible. What an honor it is that you've given us a mind that we can study, but what a greater honor that you let your mind be written down so we could know your mind and know your thoughts and know your heart and know your ways. So tonight as we study, I pray that you open our mind and understanding to you and our wisdom to your wisdom. And I give you thanks for it again as I always do. I also pray that that which is of me, we're smart enough to know it and to chew what is the meat and to spit out the bones. But that which is of the Holy Spirit birthed of you, may it find good ground and may it produce good fruit. And may we grow from it and may our faith become strong because of it. In Jesus' precious name, will you shout amen? Amen. We have got a great story, probably one of my favorite stories of the Bible, the story of Noah. Uh, it is very challenging. It's several chapters long, so we're going to take our time and go through it. Uh, remember where we are heading is we're getting up to Genesis chapter 12, and then we will call it quits. Uh, we're going to end with the birth of the nation of Israel, with Abraham's call, and then uh, we'll take a break for a few weeks and pray about where to go. I'm praying about what to do, but right now I'm leaning toward the book of Exodus. So we'll pick up uh, Israel, uh, the nation of Israel in bondage in Egypt and work out this new system of worship that God is going to do all through the Old Testament. So you continue to pray about that and we'll have fun as we close this out. We should finish out somewhere around the 1st of June. So we're going to run through. we got about another eight chapters to do between now and June. So about another eight, eight weeks. So try to cover it. But I think tonight's going to be good. It's going to start a... Uh, I, I hope it opens your heart to understand what's going on. Let's turn in our Bibles, if you will, to Genesis chapter 6. And I'm going to start reading. And I just want to read through a few verses for us and kind of get us all on the same page in the story of Noah. Genesis chapter 6, verse 1. And then the people began to multiply on the earth, and daughters were born to them. And the sons of God saw the beautiful women and took any they wanted as their wives. And the Lord said, My spirit will not put up with humans for such a long time, for they are only mortal flesh. In the future, their normal lifespan will be no more than 120 years. In those days and for some time after, giant Nephilites lived on the earth. For whenever the sons of God had intercourse with women, they gave birth to children who became the heroes and famous warriors of ancient times. The Lord observed the extent of human wickedness on earth, and he saw that everything they thought or imagined was consistently and totally evil. So the Lord was sorry he had ever made them, and he put them on the earth and put them on the earth. It broke his heart. And the Lord said, I will wipe this human race I have created from the face of the earth. Yes, and I will destroy every living thing, all the people, the large animals, the small animals that scurry along the ground, and even the birds of the sky. I am sorry I ever made them. An interesting thought that it's so bad, God's even sorry he made animals. That's pretty bad, right? Uh, didn't even want a chihuahua around. But Noah found favor with the Lord, verse 8. This is the account of Noah and his family. Noah was a righteous man, the only blameless person living on the earth at that time, and he walked in close fellowship with God. And Noah was the father of three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. 
And now God saw that the earth had become corrupt and was filled with violence. And God observed all this corruption in the world for everyone on earth was corrupt. That's pretty powerful, amen? So what I would like to do is I want to start out by giving you a thought of what I believe is going on. And it's that the story of Noah gives us another perspective on the eternal battle of God's creation wisdom. When we start out uh, in Genesis, the interesting thing in Genesis is we start out with no humans. So as we saw, whatever is downloaded had to be downloaded from the mind of God so it could be written. So there's a lot of speculation. How many hours was it? Was it days? Was it eons? Was it centuries? Was it millennia? We tried to discuss all of that. But something's different about this because now it's almost as if we're moving into another creation because everything God created will be destroyed and it will all be birthed out again. So it's a really strange story, but it's almost as if God gives us insight this time into a creation narrative where humans are already here. So verses day one, let there be light, there's no humans, and we kind of come in at the end of the story at Noah's story of a new creation account of what's happening and what God is going to do, almost essentially starting all over. And we would say in some ways he is starting all over because everything dies. Uh, everything but fish and, and animals in the water. Everything else is dead, and, but God holds the seeds. And he still has the seeds like he did in day one. There's still the seeds of trees and the seeds of animals on the ark. And and so the beauty of this is it gives us insight into God's thinking now. And now we start understanding maybe what was going on even with Adam and Eve in this thought. So here's what I want to talk about. The similarities of God's created wisdom. Looking at both of them, I'm just going to run through them quickly, not teach it, but just give them to you so it will maybe challenge you to read the story of Noah a little differently of the things we have uh, from the creation story and the things we have from the narrative of the flood. Number one, in both stories we have God, God dealing with darkness, and God's spirit. Both, of, both stories, you will see that God is there. God says, look, I can't contend with man. The darkness is so terrible. Uh, with men, I'm going to kill them all and annihilate them. My spirit cannot contend with them anymore. And then you see in the beginning, God starts out in the beginning, God, verse 2, darkness covered the face of the deep, and then the Spirit was hovering. So both stories let us know that there's this duality, this fight and this battle between God's wisdom and darkness and God's remedy of the Holy Spirit. Number two, on the creation narrative, God separates the water from the earth. Uh, that's day two. Uh, he separates the sky and he calls the land up out of the water that had been judged over the earth. He separates the water above from the water below. But in the flood narrative, God uses the water to flood the earth, which is rather strange. What he separated in day two, he brought it all back together. And it's almost as if we have the same thing unfolding again. In the creation, he separates the water from all the darkness. But then all of a sudden now in Noah's We've got darkness causing the water to come back over it to kill everything. Number three, God creates trees. And then in this narrative, it's rather strange, he uses trees. 
very thing that he created is the very thing he's going to use. We've discussed that before. Uh, if you really wanted to uh, go deep with it, it's amazing that in the trees he created, he pulled out two specific trees in the beginning creation narrative. He said, you'll have the tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And then in Noah's narrative, he said, you're only going to use a specific tree as well. So God is even letting us know that when it comes to these trees, his wisdom picks the specific ones to use. The tree of life you eat, the tree of knowledge of good and evil you die. And then he says to Noah, you, you only get to choose the cypress tree. Uh, we would probably say this, why would that even matter? Any tree will float a boat. You, you use an oak tree, you can float an oak tree, you can float a pine tree. But what God wants to know is that I'm not just after trees, I'm after obedience. If you cannot get the kind of tree I want, you might not build it the way I want. If you don't build it the way I want, everything dies. So what God is teaching us in both narratives is that his wisdom is not to be questioned, it's to be obeyed. And that is a very hard place for humans when we factor in logic. Number four, God creates animals, and then in the flood, God saves animals. Number five, we find in both narratives that God sets boundaries. Uh, the boundaries of the Garden of Eden, you had the beast of the field that were in the field, you had the animals that were in the garden, you had Adam to rule and reign over the garden. It even says God planted the garden, and then God established boundaries. The boundaries he established for Noah is the boat will be this big, this high, and this long. It'll have this many uh, layers in it, and you'll have an 18-inch opening at the top. So in both narratives, God sets a boundary, and the reason is, is he's going to place man inside that boundary. And the creation narrative, he places man in the garden, and he says, tend it and take care of it. And then with Noah, he places Noah in a boat and says, you'll take care of these animals. You need to take enough food to feed them for a year, which I don't, we don't really talk about that a lot. Uh, but, but the reality is, uh, you've got to feed these animals for a year. Some people have said they, they would sleep, but, uh, you know, it's pretty clear you've got to take enough food to feed them. So that means if you're feeding them, what, what animals also do that eat and drink? They pee and poop. So you, you're talking about a year on a boat with animals and the doors shut. You, you're going to have to figure out what to do. But God's brilliant in the way he designed the boat. The methane didn't kill him. He knew what he was doing. We'll talk about that later. Number seven, both stories God is going to judge rebellion. Number eight, both stories, God provides a sacrifice. With Adam and Eve, the sacrifice was that he made skins out of animals. With Noah, he tells Noah, take seven extra animals that are clean, that are for sacrificing, and that are for offerings, and take them on the boat with you. And so in both narratives, God provides the sacrifice. Uh, and so this tells us a little bit about the character of God, that, that the Lord is sticking pretty close to his character and he's in a strange way both stories just kind of run concurrent and if we're smart and you know wise with it we can pull from both narratives to really get a good picture of God however there's some differences between the beginning and the flood very distinctly there are several things that are different in the two number one uh, in the chapter one God judges angels before humans we talked about that that world of the spirit world where Lucifer ruled the world in verse 2 of Genesis 1 God comes in and judges that domain 
And that was before humans ever existed. But in the flood, God is going to judge the angels and the spirit world along with the humans. Everybody's going to get judged with together. And God is not only going to come against those of humans, but what the spirit world has still been doing. In the creation narrative, you have male and female that multiply. Adam and Eve, they have children, sons and daughters who get married. And then the flood, you have spirit beings that are mating with females. We'll talk about that tonight. That's going to be our topic. I'll try to give it to you in a way that may make sense out of it as we get there. Number three, the earth is filled with the glory of God. But in the flood, the earth is filled with the violence of man. Two very distinct differences at the end conclusion. Number four, beginning creation, God calls everything good. And then in the flood, God calls everything wicked. Number five, it begins with eternal life. If you eat this tree, you'll live forever. And number five, in the flood, it ends with mortal life. God even says nobody's going to live more than 120 now. We're about to change things drastically. Um, I have my opinions on it as we get there, so I'll hold the opinions when we talk about it in the future of why God chose 120 years uh, to be that. And I, I think it may even connect to with the 120 that are in the upper room. Genesis 6, 6 through 7. So the Lord was sorry if he had ever made them. It would almost make you think on a casual reading that God's regretting it. Like he didn't know this was going to happen. But he knew it would happen. There's nothing about this that took him for surprise. So he's not sorry because he's shocked. He's sorry because he knows that this route has to be taken so that the Son of God can come in the flesh. And for the Son of God to come in the flesh, he's sorry that the wickedness that has taken over is still going to be the thing that propagates the reason for the Son of God to come in the flesh. It says it broke his heart. And the Lord said, I will wipe the human race that I have created from the face of the earth. I'm going to destroy everything. Here's what's interesting. All the people... The large animals, the small animals that scurry along the ground, even the birds of the sky. And you really ask yourself, like, what did these animals do? What did they do to deserve such punishment? What did the, why, why would God want to kill a giraffe? What did a giraffe ever do that would break God's heart? It's no different than us asking the question today as humans, why does God let bad things happen to good people? I think before we ask why does God let bad things happen to good people, we would start with most people aren't good at all. The Bible says there's nobody good. But I think we could, if we were PETA, we could really fight this. Because we, we pretty much know a koala never hurt anybody. But you're going to kill it. You know, a guinea pig's never hurt anybody. But you're going to kill everything. So it does make us bid, well, why would God allow the death of things that probably weren't part of the problem? And it teaches us that in a fallen world, everything suffers. Even the good things suffer. It rains on the just and the unjust alike. And I know we like to say it doesn't feel fair that God lets bad things happen to good people. I would imagine the zebra says, this doesn't feel fair. I didn't eat the fruit. I didn't do this and I'm going to drown it. It doesn't feel fair that you didn't pick me. 
Why didn't I get picked? Why'd you pick Chuck? Chuck and Betty are getting on the boat and you're leaving me behind. And then you can imagine you didn't get left behind. Uh, you know, Peter and June got picked and they were two birds that got picked. And you're like, oh, I'm not going to get it. And all of a sudden he says, no, nah, we need five more birds to come along. And you're like, hey, I get on the boat. And so when you get on the boat and you're like, I'm here, I made it, I made it, I made it. You ride the whole trip and get to the end and go, well, the reason you made it is we're going to kill you for a sacrifice. And you're like, you're kidding me. Well, if you're going to kill me, why did you trick me to let me ride the whole trip with you thinking I was going to live when the whole time you were going to kill me anyway? And it gives us some insight to the life of Christ that he comes to live, but the whole time the plan was he's going to die anyway. So all of it gives us insight to the life of Christ. That the innocent is going to die. Those are all the animals that are innocent. They're going to die. Why? Because Christ is going to be innocent. He's going to be the lamb that was slain from the foundation of the earth. But he's going to die. But he's going to die for the punishment of Adam and the sin that it caused all of creation. This, the other seven clean animals that get on the boat that are going to come to sacrifice is going to be because the life that was given was preserved to become a sacrifice for the sins. So that Christ is going to come and the life he's been given is preserved to a certain point. Like, you can't kill me till it's my time, right? That's what he says. Try to kill me, you can't, sorry. It's not my time to go. But when it was his time to go, the innocent Lamb of God that was spared through the journey of his life is now given up as an offering. So we see all of this in this simple passage becomes this beautiful object lesson of the Son of God that is to come in the future. But what has time done to mortal humans? What's happened that when Adam was around, God would come down and commune with humans. But 1,600 years later is when Noah lived. So, you know, it's quite a bit of time has passed. Adam's dead and gone. But what transpired from... I want to commune with humans to I'm going to annihilate humans. We know one thing for sure is that God did not change. Come on. Right? He never changes. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. So why would God suddenly think, on one hand, I love communing, because here's the deal. He was communing with Adam who was still a fallen creature. He just provided a sacrifice and he would still come down. He still was with Enoch. He still communed with Cain and Abel and, and both of them were fallen. Both of them came from a fallen parent. But God came down and taught with Cain. So there's this weird moment that in the early years of humanity, God is coming down with sinful humans and he's communing with them. He's teaching them sacrifices. He's, I don't know what he's doing, but it's no different than Jesus being resurrected, spending 40 days, and, and it says, and he was downloading the kingdom. And I'm like, who wrote this? I want to know what he downloaded. Well, I don't know what God downloaded, but he's walking. But 1,600 years later, God's like, yeah, done. Not even going to come chit-chat with you people. Wish I'd have never made you. You break my heart. I'm going to annihilate every one of you. Now, what it shows us is not that God changes what it shows us is that sin is a cancer that once it gets a hold, it eats to the death. You can never look at sin as an action. Sin is a disease that once it grabs hold of you, 
It eats you till you die. It totally, there's not, once you open the door to it and it grabs hold of you, it eats like a cancer. It never says enough. It always wants more. Once the flesh is opened up, the flesh always wants more. It's why you have to crucify the flesh. You can't play with sin. You, you can't just open it up and go, it's just a little sin. That was an old thing years ago. Knock, knock, who's there? Just a little sin. I cracked the door, all hell rushed in. It just takes a little bit. It just takes, even Jesus will teach, just a little bit of leaven does what to the whole batch? Ruins the whole batch. So what we're, what we're learning here, and this is what's strange, is that sin is not an action. So I didn't put this on the note, but write it down because it is a good note. I didn't put it in my notes. But write this down. Sin is not just an action. Sin is a power. Sin is a power. This is why in the New Testament, the words, you must be born again, delivered from the power of sin. Paul writes it beautifully in Romans. Who will deliver me from this body of sin, this power that I don't want to do what I do and I do what I don't want to do and I can't control it, I can't stop it. What Paul is teaching us here is that sin is this, it's weird, it's this living thing and it, and it corrupts everything that it touches. It gets in a church, it corrupts the people. It gets in your marriage, it corrupts the marriage. It, and so this is what it's going to teach us is that it wasn't that God changed. What it's going to show us is when Adam sinned, you really don't see any difference. Like one minute he's like, oops, I sinned. Oh, he's naked. Oh, that doesn't feel so bad. Make a leaf. Right? I mean, it just doesn't feel that bad because you don't really see the power of sin in a 24-hour period. But you factor 1,600 years in and you will... God himself comes along and says, I'm just annihilating all of them. Because in one day of sin, God's like, here's the sacrifice. You're good. I made some animal clothes. Let's keep talking to each other. But because it's a power, everybody they birth, the power grows. And it feasts on itself. And it's, it's, it, this is my opinion. It's why Jesus said, I would rather have you hot or cold. I can't have you in the middle. Why? Because when you're in the middle, it's thinking that sin is actions and not power. And you'll be a Christian with a power that's eating away, thinking you're doing good things and you're not. You'd do better just to go that way and let it eat you than to try to stave it off. Here's Mark chapter 10, because this is what got me thinking. Jesus looked at them intently and said, Humanly speaking, it is impossible, but not with God. How much is possible with God? Everything. And this kind of blows me away because the question it made me ask was, what transpired that would cause an all-powerful God to have only one remedy? Annihilation. If you can do all things, couldn't you fix it? If you can do all, if all things are possible for you, why can't you just do something to fix the problem? Why are you literally sitting there, watch, a God that can do the impossible saying, I wish I'd have never made them, it breaks my heart, 
I'm going to annihilate them all off the planet. If you can do anything, and if what you say is true, you love humans and you're going to give yourself to humans, then why are you going to annihilate them off? And many times, we, if we're not careful, we teach that God killed him because he was mad. God killed him because he was sad. Uh, God killed him because they were such bad people that they were never going to turn to him. But if that be true, he killed them because they were bad, because they wouldn't turn to him, then the fallacy would be, then what are we going to do in 2022? We think we're any better than that group of people? So then we would say, well, then what would work for us? As a matter of fact, we'll learn as we go through the story that what the remedy God chose is so powerful that he tells Noah, I'll never do it again. So something has to shift, even in the story, that will make God say, my only remedy is annihilation, but once it's finished, I'll never do that again. And God is going to touch something that's pretty interesting. Here's what I think is going on and what I want to teach tonight. Of what I think is happening in the beginning, opening verses of chapter 6. Now when the Pharisees, this is Mark, Matthew 12. Now when the Pharisees heard this, they said, this fellow doesn't cast, talking about Jesus. He doesn't cast out demons except by Beelzebub, the ruler of demons. But Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, every kingdom, this is interesting now, every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation and every city or house divided against itself can't stand. Weird, uh, 26 is weird. If Satan cast out Satan, he's divided against himself. And then if you ever wanted one of the most powerful questions of scripture, it's this, how will his kingdom stand? Because Jesus admits that Satan has his own kingdom. And that Jesus admits he has his own powers, he has his own rulers, he has his own demons, he has his own authority. Strange that now Jesus is introducing us to something Job did not know. Because in Job's time, God was over all the kingdoms, and good and bad. But what Jesus is teaching us now is, there's two very distinct kingdoms rolling here. So let's don't always blame on God what this other kingdom may be doing. Even though you don't know it exists, it does exist. And then he says about this kingdom that I'm going to let you in on. It has rulers, it has powers, it has demons. And it's working in a way that is contrary to the way God works. So Jesus kind of gives us this weird insight that you don't even get in the beginning. In the beginning you just kind of get God's doing everything. God's over it all. God's mad at a bunch of people. But if you read this, there's been a kingdom of Lucifer working from the moment he rebelled. We taught, we taught that, so I don't want to go there again. But, but you, in your thinking, we've, we've got to get that there, that unseen world is real. And that, here's the strange part, and that unseen world can come into this world and work. Both kingdoms, God's kingdom and Lucifer's kingdom, both strange, but they do. They have the ability to break into our realm and do things. Manipulate things on this end with the devil and, and try to uh, bring kingdom. And both are trying to bring kingdom. And Jesus says, let me be very clear. This kingdom has zero to do with this kingdom. And they'll never be together because if they are, they fall apart. 
Here's another thought that is interesting. Jesus even said, and Paul, uh, you know, kind of reinstates it here in Corinthians 6. What harmony can there be between Christ and the devil? He, uh, in other words, he's asking it in a way of how dare you? If you want to go read that tonight, it, it's in the context of a Christian that is trying to play games with sinful behavior. Trying to live idolatrous and drunk and perverted and sexuality. And it's really just a, almost an entire litany of sexual perversions. And then he comes to this and says, look, I'm just going to tell you, there is zero harmony between Christ and between what the devil is doing. So with that in mind, Jesus stating there's a kingdom of the devil that works and there can be no harmony between the two and the two will, watch, the two will never come together in unity. They will never unify. They are totally separate. Well, if we take that thought and we parse it back to Genesis 6, we may know now why this impossible God is going to let us know annihilation is the only answer. Because what has happened with the people I'm going to annihilate, they have united with the devil's kingdom. Watch, this is my thinking. They have united with the devil's kingdom so deeply that there's no remedy but annihilation. Because nothing I could do could, here's my thinking, nothing God could do could bring them back from how far they had gone. They're too far gone. Which you would think, wait a minute. No human could ever be so far gone that God could not get them. And to that I would say, yes, if you're talking just about a human that's in sinful behavior, but I think something's going on more than sinful behavior. I'll teach that tonight is what I want to teach. Here's the answer. The reason God wanted to annihilate them all is seemingly humans have entered a state of being where it's impossible for God to be at harmony with them. So we can at least state that. I wish I would have never made them. It breaks my heart. I don't want to make them. And, and I can't fix them. I'm going to annihilate them. So at least we can say God is, is letting us know that humans are at a place of non-harmony. Now what is the only thing a holy God could not be harmonious with? Well, we could say sinful behavior, but that's not the gospel. The way God is harmonious with sinful behavior is He provides a sacrifice. And anytime there's sinful behavior, God says, you're not in harmony with me, but here's a sacrifice, and now by sacrifice you can be in harmony with me. So we can't just say it's sinful behavior and that these people are really bad and need forgiveness. My belief is they're in a state of being where blood sacrifice is not what God is going for because it's not forgiveness they need. They are in a place where blood sacrifice won't offer forgiveness and this is what I think and where they are. The people began to multiply on the earth and the daughters were born to them. Verse 2 in green. The sons of God saw beautiful women and they took any they wanted of their wives. And God said, my spirit will not put up with them for such a long time for their only mortal flesh. And in those days and for some time after, John and Felix lived on the earth. And then I put it in pink and I put it in red. At the bottom. The sons of God had intercourse with women. I'm going to give you two. One I'm just going to comment on. You can study it. I'm not against it. It's not my 
choice, but I'll throw it out there for you want it, because what I'm going to share with you is an opinion I have and why I land on it. Uh, if you study this out biblically, many times people will say the sons of God is Seth. And all the descendants of Seth, you know, he was the one, Adam and Eve had a third kid named Seth, and he's in the line of Jesus. And so what some people teach is that Seth was have Seth's kids, righteous kids, were having sex with Cain's kids, unrighteous kids, and producing this. I got no problem with that. It has no bearing on me if it's right or wrong, but it does make me question... If it's only Seth's kids, quote, sons of God, having sex with Cain's kids, daughters of men, that doesn't seem like an impossibility for God to fix. Because unrighteous people have been having sex with righteous people all the time. Still to this day. We'll sleep with somebody that's not godly. And even in the New Testament it says, now you righteous should not sleep with unrighteous people. You shouldn't marry so if it was something God couldn't fix, it would, uh, that's just my point. It's, like, it's not anything God can't fix here. So I don't believe it's just godly men having sex with ungodly women or the line of Seth being righteous with ungodly Cain being unrighteous and then they produce a generation where God goes killing them all. What I think is going on, and if I was just going to debate this, I would say, do you really think that Seth's line is righteous? All the kids are fallen. Every kid that comes out of Adam and Eve is dead to, to the God. They're lost. They have to be born again. So to, to label every kid of Seth as godly, the son of God, is stretching it to me. But if we take the son of God, which many times throughout the rest of the Old Testament... Uh, often it refers to angels and spirit beings. Beings that are other than just a human. So the way it would read is in the pink, the sons of God, the spirit beings, some translated as angels, had intercourse with women. Now the reality of that is, and I tried to teach this before with Lucifer, there's a big difference in cherubim and seraphim who are the winged, oh, oh, what we think is angels. But if we're going to just take the biblical term angels, angels in the Bible are not in white robes with big wings. Those are cherubim and seraphim. Angels, according to the Bible, can appear like a human and you don't even know they're an angel. It says you can entertain these people unaware. They literally look human. And you can sit there and be talking with one and he says you need to be careful because that could be an angel. In other words, a being from the other world that God, the Bible calls it in Hebrews 1 if you want to write it down. Their angels are ministering spirits that are sent to serve. So you have to get angel as, her, her, you know, big old wings like that. Angels are spirits that God uses to serve his kingdom. And then half of them, or a third of them, leave with Lucifer. So here's what we do know, is that these spirit beings that were sent to serve God's kingdom follow Lucifer's rebellion, and so Lucifer uses them to propagate his kingdom. Why? Because the gifts and callings of God are without repentance. So if you're created by God to serve the kingdom, and then you rebel... You still have a gift to serve the kingdom. You're just serving a different kingdom. 
So God doesn't take away the gifts of that they have. They just use it for their own ill-gotten gain. So that what I believe is happening is that these spirit beings came down. Here's what's weird. I'll give it to you. You don't have to believe like me. So don't, don't think I'm making you believe this. I'm giving you my thinking on it. From what I've studied and read in New Testament as well as Old Testament, I've come to this. There is a kingdom. There are demons and spirits in that kingdom. It's totally antithetical to God's kingdom. And the two kingdoms can never, ever, ever be in harmony with each other. And both kingdoms operate from the realm of each have a father. Now if each has a father, that means that this kingdom can have children and this kingdom can have children. And one kingdom should obey and the other kingdom disobeys, whatever. So when we come to this, here's the thing that throws us for a loop. Unless you love to watch Marvel and DC Comics and Harry Potter and all these weird Hollywood movies. Most Christians probably don't believe that a spirit being can have intercourse with a human. They're like, it's impossible. Even Jesus says the angels in heaven don't marry nor are given in marriage. And I'm like, well, yeah, we're not talking about marriage. We're talking about perversion. We're not talking about these spirit beings get married. We're talking about these spirit beings have left a domain and come into the domain of humans and to propagate their kingdom, they have decided we can have intercourse with these women. So you have to get out of the sexless angels are sexless because there's not giving in marriage and there you have to go to angels are spirit beings and they can manifest in such a way that they literally look like humans whether you're on the road to Emmaus talking to, to them or whatever you, you, they can appear as angels whether they're sitting at the tomb going why are you here looking for the living among the dead the angels can appear, the spirit beings. But here's the thinking. Why would the devil's kingdom feel the need for the spirit beings to come and pervert the women of earth? It's because in Genesis 3, God gave the testament, and here it is. He gave the testament of prophecy to Lucifer. So the head of one kingdom, God, says to Lucifer, Hey, my kingdom is going to have a seed that is going to come through that woman and that woman, that her seed is going to crush your head. Now God spoke that to Lucifer, an angel, a, a cherubim. He spoke it to him as Lucifer was in rebellion with demons and all his spirit beings that followed him. It's not far stretched for me to believe that Lucifer thought, oh, wait a minute, did you you just say that woman? I, I believe this because I immediately see the birth of Cain and Abel. There already comes an attack. Now, if I'm just reading Genesis, I don't see the devil involved. But if I take Jesus and merge it with Genesis, I very much see the devil involved because God says, hey, sin is crouching. In other words, it's not just an action here, Cain. There's a power that's involved in the environment of your life. And this power is trying to take you over. 
It's crouching to destroy you. And we don't really get any inference. Here's the strange thing. We get no inference in the Bible that the devil even bothered women yet. What we get is he immediately attacked man. And then he had Cain kill Abel. And he's like, well, I win. The problem was is that Eve could keep popping them out. Well, if the woman can keep popping them out, my battle's eternal, right? Because now it's like, hey, everybody, he pops out, I got to... So in thinking, now remember, Lucifer's not stupid. We've made him dumb, but he was created brilliant. It's my belief that when he realized that he could get rid of Abel by having Cain kill him and banish Cain by having God reject him, I don't think Lucifer factored she would go back in the tent and have Seth. My opinion. Because he doesn't know all things. So when she burps out another kid, and then Genesis 5 more and more and more, because it's Genesis 5, remember, that says, and Cain and Abel had other sons, I mean Cain and Abel, Adam and Eve had other sons and daughters. It's my belief that and daughters is where Lucifer tacks in, wait a minute, why am I coming after the man when if I could pervert the womb of a woman, everything she would birth would belong to me now? If I could have her womb produce my seed, she will produce beings that are after my likeness. That's just my thinking. I'm logically trying to work it out. So that Lucifer, my belief is, begins to infiltrate women. And he begins from the spirit world to have intercourse. This is not to scare you. I don't mean this to scare you. But in studying of witchcraft, witches, warlocks, Satanism, I'll go that deep with it, Satanism, in some of the things I've studied and read and testimonies I've heard, it is not uncommon at all that in the realm of Satanism that people don't give testimonies that I was raped in my bed by a spirit being. That they were laying there and a being came into the room and had intercourse with them. Now I hear that and go, oh, that just seems so weird. But yet coming from the people and even the people that gave testimony that we would have, this is in the writings of different people and testimonies of, I wouldn't call them testimonies, but what they say is, is that it was nothing to do seances and to invite spirits to come in and, and have intercourse with you. And, and I've heard many people give testimony as Christian. I was laying in bed and I suddenly felt the presence in the room and I started feeling suffocated and I couldn't move and it was choking me. And, I, and I'm like, well, if it can go that far, then I think this is, this is my opinion. This is not that far of a stretch. Now, the reason I stretched it that far is because this is the only thing in my logic that would tell me why God feels the need to annihilate them. And the reason would be is because it says this in Numbers, you, this is just a thought, Numbers 13, uh, they go to explore the land and the same word, the giants, the Nephilim, are still there and yet they teach it in such a way that these beings that are still on the planet are very threatening to us. They're against God's kingdom. So now we realize that these giants that are against God's kingdom, and the beautiful thing about it, I'm just throwing these out so you can think about it, it's why God comes into the promised land and says, wipe them all out, kids and everybody. Kill them all. 
when Joshua goes into the land. Because that land, we may teach this later, that land had been perverted by all this ungodly sexuality of spirit beings with humans. And so God's dealing with it. So I believe, this is my thought, I believe the annihilation is God's only remedy because humans became a mingled seed of spirit beings in humans. Now because, and it says that when these women would birth out these children, they were giants, they were uh, men of renown, they were warriors of the time. If you, if you study it, that many people believe that that's where Greek mythology came from. And if you really get out there, and I'm inclined to kind of be there, that uh, all the Greek mythology that we say is mythology, Neptune, Poseidon, all of these were offspring of this demonic activity that was going on 1,600 years from creation where all these demigods are trying to control the weather and, and over sex and over perversion and over war because the enemy is setting up a kingdom. We write about it today as if it's fiction and Greek mythology. I'm not saying it's not, but I'm like... Uh, it seems very clear that these gods and demigods and undergods and sons of gods is nothing more than the kingdom of Lucifer that is trying to follow the kingdom of God himself. And he's trying to birth out demigods and people that will serve him. Here's my opinion. The reason God has to annihilate them is he can't save a being that is half demon and half human. It's impossible to redeem that. God cannot redeem a spirit being that is birthed from a demon. So whatever they are that are there, Nephilim, giant, or offsprings of a human spirit, evil spirit communion of intercourse, what we do know is God's looking at it going, here's weird, that's unredeemable. I can't just have you kill a bird to bring that back. I can't just slaughter a goat and go, everybody's forgiven. So what we would have to say is, here's my thinking, whatever was on planet Earth at the time of Noah, I have a hard time believing that they were human as we would know human. And I'll tell you why I think that in a minute. Why annihilation? Humans have sinned. And when humans sin, you can shed blood. Bring me a sacrifice. Bring me a lamb. Bring me a bird. Bring me whatever. It's all the way through the Bible. If a spirit being possesses a human, what do you do? You cast it out. Satan, come out. You deaf, dumb spirit, come out of the person. Jesus would literally speak to them. You mute spirit, loose their mouth. You dumb spirit, you blind spirit, you deaf spirit. What is your name? My name is Legion. Come out of them. You have no business being in them. So what we learn from the devil is that he can inhabit the soul of human beings, but that's still different. You can cast that out and people become free. But if this is true, that spirit beings mate with humans, there is no remedy. Death is the only thing that's available. That soul or that product of that union is unredeemable. And it just must die. There's no way God can have harmony with it. There's no way He can make amends for it. It's, it's annihilation only. Now, if we go look at the work of Jesus, 
any human that sins, forgiven, any human possessed, delivered, and I'm not going to teach whether this still goes on today, you know, spirit beings with humans. I'm, I'm inclined to believe not, and I have my reasons why. Uh, but I'm not saying it didn't happen during the time of Noah. But I, I believe that this seemingly helps me understand why everybody's dead. Because if you're God, just redeem them, forgive them. Father, forgive them, they know not what they do. And yet God just acts like forgiveness is not even an option with this group of people. Here's Genesis 6, 11. Now God saw that the earth had become corrupt and was filled with violence. And God observed all this corruption in the world. And then what does it say here? How many people are corrupt? Now either, either sin is a power or the devil's working overtime with the amount of spirit beings that are trying to mate with these humans, women. Now whatever, whether they're all heroes of renown and the enemy has corrupted, every woman's womb has been corrupted by the devil. Or whether every living being has been corrupted by the devil, here's what we do know, is that every human being is corrupt. Now what we get by that is this, the word corrupt means to be ruined or destroyed or rotted. It's been ruined. Now you and I would say the blood of Jesus can heal anything. He raised up Lazarus from the dead. He can bring back dead people to life. So what we would have to know is whatever this word corrupt, translating as ruined and destroyed, we would at least have to come to the thinking of that it's different than just somebody that was in sin because that can be redeemed by forgiveness. It's different than somebody that's dead because he raised up Lazarus. So whatever it is, the power has brought it to a place to where utter ruin has happened. And I don't believe it's sin because God is more powerful than sin. So whatever the ruin and the destruction is, it's caused God to go, yeah, yeah, we're done here. And I again think it's the mingling of the seed because the devil's going after the seed of woman. Here's what's going on. God wanted a people for his possession. His reasoning was to produce a seed, Genesis 3.15, that would serve as the eternal redemption for all the cosmic rebellion. So I believe that if Lucifer knows that he can corrupt every woman, then there'll never be a chance for a woman to corrupt him and kill him. Because the seed has to be holy. So I think the devil's working overtime We'll see that in the book of Exodus to kill all the babies, uh, catch them in the womb, abortion. I believe even to this day, uh, you know, we don't really need Nephilim to destroy the women's womb. We've got abortion. Just any potential thing that could come along to destroy my kingdom, I'm going to get rid of it before it ever gets here. So let's not think that, oh God, this mating with humans is so terrible. I think abortion is 20,000 times worse because it's still willingly getting rid of the woman's womb so that there cannot be any possibility of God using a human. Genesis 6, this is the account of Noah. This is where it gets interesting now. So what we've come to is that the entire planet of human beings is corrupt, meaning deserve to be destroyed. They're rotted to the core. They are ruined. 
I wish I would have never made them. It breaks my heart. I'm going to destroy them. And then this weird just introduction of some strange dude that we, we don't even really know him. But God is the one that gives testimony to him. So it's not his friends that say this about him. It's God himself. This is the account of Noah and his, and I love this, his family. What God is letting us know that what's about to happen has to do with the seed of a man's family. It's all about seed. And it says, Noah was a righteous man... And this version says the only blameless person living on the earth. Uh, the King James, I says, actually picks the word perfect. There was nobody on the earth that was perfect like this man. Now I would say, if I'm guessing, I would say it's definitely not that Noah's born again. That's not a possibility. It's definite that he didn't descend from Adam, so he still has a fallen nature so how could God call this guy righteous and blameless when there's been no Jesus to make him righteous? And how could you say he's blameless? We'll understand righteousness this way. We'll probably talk about this next week. Righteousness is putting your faith in God. So what we would say is Noah in his generation had placed his faith in God. So we can gather this from Noah. He's on God's side of the kingdom. Whether he's a you know, uh, has a problem or not, or it has fleshly issues, God has defined him as, this guy is on my side of the kingdom. Everybody else is corrupt and ruined and rotted. This guy is on my side of the kingdom. These are under a power that deserves annihilation. This guy's different. And then it uses this word, the only blameless man, and then gives us more testament that now we're talking about uh, fellowship. We're talking about communion. Remember what it said in Corinthians. What fellowship has righteousness with unrighteousness? What fellowship has Christ with the devil? So now we've even brought this that maybe what's going on is God has pulled this one man out to say this one man that is left is a sign of my righteousness that will never commune with this world of the demonic. We're going to annihilate the world of the demonic and the two will never commune. Here's what's weird. It, uh, in the story as we read later, it doesn't even lend itself that God made the boat to save other humans. Which sounds crazy, right? Like, well, why, if God cares about people, why wouldn't he make more room for all these humans? And it's not that God didn't care because the New Testament says that Noah was a preacher of righteousness. He tried to get them to repent and they still wouldn't do it. So it does show us that even though God is trying to get their attention, they could care less. Why? Because they're so perverted that they're at a place of apostasy and they are never going to turn to God. So even if God made a sacrifice, they're not going to turn. Even if we just left all the spirit beings out and God said, here's my sacrifice, they will reject it. It's why the New Testament says that in the end there will become an apostate, a falling away. In other words, you will be like Judas Iscariot. Here's the sacrifice, and he goes, yeah, thank you, but no. He becomes apostate. It's the, the age-old question debate, would God save the devil if the devil repented? Well, it's great to think about, well, is God powerful enough to save the devil? 
And we debated that for a long time. And the, the answer is the devil's never going to ask. You've assumed that the devil is in a place where he would be convicted to ask. He will never be convicted. He is so far gone that he will never turn and say, look, I'm really sorry. And it shows the power of sin that once sin can get so deep, you become so callous that even if God stands in front of you, you will reject him. That's the power of sin. It calluses the heart so that you can't even repent. And so here we sit and we understand that there is a dude that is in fellowship. He's on God's kingdom. He's fellowshipping with God. And he's called blameless. Now here's the word blameless. It's a very strange word and we're going to end here in the next slide. And then I've got a few verses. But I do want to at least spark you to think this through. The word blameless, the Hebrew word tamim, it means to be complete. Now it can mean complete as in a husband and a wife and they've had sex and children. They're fulfilling the original command of God. A male and a female that are multiplying. It could be complete there. It could be complete in that he's not only a male and female reproducing according to the original command, but he's walking in fellowship with God, which is what Adam was to be doing. That could be complete. It could be complete that he is considered righteous, so he's put his faith in God. But then it uses this, uh, and I gave it at the, under the word at the very bottom, undefiled. It carries the testament that it means you've not been tainted. You've not been played with. You, you're pure. Uh, so what we would say is that his bloodline, his, his wife, and his, here's what's weird, his sons, and then their daughters are in a line that carries the pureness of God, of my thinking, is Adam's original blood. In other words, they're 100% human. And they carry an undefiledness in their relationship with God that God is going to pull them out. And through Noah, because he's undefiled, meaning he's the last... Here's what's weird. I know we can watch it in movies. It's easy to believe in movies. But in the Bible, it's hard to believe that there's only one family left that's pure. Out of all of them. That's how much sin has taken over. But the story lends us to believe is it's not that God's unfair. It's that God's pulling out the pureness of the blameless of the bloodline of Adam that had not been untainted by Lucifer and Noah's wife that had not been untainted by the, by the spirit beings and then the children that came out of them and God is going to kind of in a weird way like have a rebirth with this line of Noah. Here's the conclusion. I'll leave it up there while it's long and then I'm going to give you two scriptures. It's my belief that Noah was the only remaining human who was undefiled and uncorrupted from the mingling of human and demonic seed in whatever way that had brought them to a place of not being able to be redeemed in harmony with God. This blameless state of being was the reasoning of why God will choose him to continue the human race while annihilating all remaining corrupted humans. And it's weird when we get out of the boat, it's weird how perverted the story becomes pretty quickly. Perversion takes over pretty quick and we find that Nephilim are still around so they're still doing 
They're bidding somehow. But God, and this is the beauty of this, and I think it's, it's, man, it just makes your heart leap. It's the power of Abraham when God finally, out of this human race that's corrupted, pulls one man out and says, out of this man, I'm going to redeem all of humanity. And that one thing, something totally different happened that had never happened before, is God grabbed a man and made him a family. Made God, this is my kids, my family. It's going to be, now here's the weird thing, and I'm going to pull them to myself. They're going to be different than every other nation. Their laws are going to be different than every other nation. Their worship is going to be different than every other nation. And these are my family. And then he says things like this, and you don't ever marry from my family to any of these other families. That's where racism gets started. But it wasn't because it was color versus color, nation versus nation. It was God's kids versus Lucifer's kids. And they were never to intermingle. It's how Solomon became corrupted and ruined and uh, as he went outside of what God had commanded. So here's two thoughts. Bring it to the New Testament so we know it's not just an Old Testament thought. For husbands, this means love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave his life for her to make her holy and clean washed with the cleansing of God's word. He did this to present her to himself a glorious church. What's he still looking for today? Without spot and no blemish. This thinking that Christians can just live any way they want to live. YOLO, I love him, he loves me. I can play with sin a little bit. I can be defiled, I can be rotted, I can be ruined. Because God loves us all. This perversion that is crept into the body of Christ today that we can live any way we want to live sexually. We can be anything we want to be because of the love of God. But you read this and you bring into this this without spot and other blemish. It takes us all the way back to the days of Noah. That this perversion of life, this male and female, this church of the living God is to be holy and without fault. The final scripture, James 1. Dear brothers, when troubles of any kind come, consider it an opportunity for great joy. For know this, that when your faith is tested, your endurance has a chance to grow. So let it grow, for when your endurance is developed, you will be perfect and complete. And now we realize that every person of faith in some weird way gets tested on your faith. Are you a genuine person? When life begins to throw a trouble, do you really belong to God or do you belong to the devil? When trouble comes, he begins to accuse you. God doesn't love you. God doesn't care about you. God won't take care of you. God doesn't answer your prayers. He owed you something and he didn't give it to you. So we become bitter. We become mad that God didn't do for me. Because I get into this place where my faith is tested and rather than realizing, wait a minute, if my faith is being tested, the end result is my faith will show I am complete, I belong to God, and I will not like anything. And so it causes me to endure. But for many people, because it's a kingdom versus a kingdom, the moment trouble comes and my faith is tested, I suddenly become this person who becomes defiled. The trouble changes me. The trouble causes me to lose faith. The trouble causes me to leave this family and come over to this family. Causes me to apostate. Well, if God was so good, he wouldn't have let this trouble come to me. I'm out of here. But when the trouble comes, it's a moment where your faith can kick in and say, No, 
I know whom I've believed, and I'm persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed unto him against this day. And I am perfect and entire and lacking nothing, because my Father God will fight for me. For if God be for me, who can be against me? And so this whole thing of what's going on in Noah is playing out in both realms, New and Old Testament, kingdom and kingdom. We'll pull it out next week. We'll dig it out. We'll start looking at the dimensions of the boat. I think it's going to be real good for us. I hope you enjoyed tonight. I bless you. Let me pray for you and you can go.